message tonight out of the uh, book of Ezekiel, chapter 9, The Mark of God. We've looked a little bit at chapter 9 uh, another week, and a little bit at chapter 10, and we looked at chapter 8, and it's important to have these three chapters together, they go together, it's kind of like one vision, 8, 9, and 10, and get the theme of it together. So we're going to do a little bit of review back into chapter 8, and starting verse 2. Below his waist, fire. Above his waist, brightness. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me in visions to God, of God to Jerusalem. The glory of God, excuse me, the glory of God of Israel was there. So Ezekiel sees the glory of God. He sees the presence of God. He sees the power of God. And he's lifted up by the Spirit of God. And he from, goes from Babylon in spirit, in, in vision, to Jerusalem. He doesn't literally go there, but in vision he's taken there to see what is going on in Jerusalem, and God takes him into the temple and shows him what's there. And, and there in the temple, he sees the image which provokes to jealousy. And again, we talked about that in, in the sermon, and you can look more on those sermons um, on shalomadventure.com for a review. We looked at some of the ways that applies to us today. Uh, still today, nothing new. Uh, things still happening the same way they have. The image which provokes to jealousy and people still worshiping images, still people praying and bowing down and kissing and, and showing uh, respect to a piece of metal or a piece of stone. And you will see greater abominations. And I saw creeping things, abominable beasts, and all idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around the world walls. So God shows... Ezekiel in the temple, he shows him this idol, it provokes God to jealousy, and it shows him these uh, idols carved into the walls and then worshiping those things as well. And you'll see greater abominations that they are doing. Women weeping for Tammuz. And Tammuz, uh, we talked a little bit about Tammuz, but there's some other things. that um, Tammuz had uh, two main celebrations, as I understand it. Uh, he was uh, a god that was worshipped in all these things. We saw these Various idols have uh, worshipped in different segments of the world, in particular around Egypt, uh, around Israel, Egypt, and Assyria, and, and, and Babylon. And, and Tammuz was worshipped by all those, as well as Assyria, and going way back to the Sumerians. Um, but two main aspects, uh, the celebration of his birth, which uh, I believe they, they teach was that uh, it was on December 25th having to do with the summer solstice, that the sun is now starting to come up more often. So we went past the, the, the shortest and darkest day of the year to, to then the, the sun shining more, so co correlating with the sun, and as well as a weeping uh, correlating with his death, which uh, I believe was in the summertime, and according to the tradition that he was killed by a boar, uh, he's a wild pig, basically, right? And, uh, and, but then is resurrected. Uh, that some woman, I forget, some lover or someone's mother or something like that, I forget all the details, uh, goes down into the netherworld and resurrects him. And so that is celebrated um, as well. So his death uh, is a morning time, and that was in the summer, with the sun then reaching its peak time and then beginning to have shorter and shorter days. And so this worship of Tammuz, mixing that, with, with the sun aspect of it. And, and so greater abomination. So it's bad enough to have this idol and bad enough to have these carvings and then having this 
weeping for Tammuz and participating in that aspect. And so there was the two, one for weeping, and then this other one was a celebratory time, which had all kinds of debauchery going on attached with it. But then, and you will see greater abominations than these. With their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, they were worshiping the sun toward the east. And so the sun worship, and there again some pictures from archaeological digs of these different images, carved images and statues, uh, with the sun god as a main aspect of it. And again, Babylon, Egypt, and all these various different cultures worshiping the sun and today, still, the sun plays a prominent role uh, in images, and back then as well, a lot of these images, a lot of the statues had the, the solar disk behind it. And so again, the sun having to, uh, a play with a lot of different pagan gods. And today, still, the sun playing a prominent role in religious circles. And we see here some photographs from Jerusalem, from from. Uh, place where they believe he was killed, Yeshua was killed, the sun right there on the floor, the sun right there on the, on the ceiling above where they believed he was buried, and the sun, the Eucharist placed right within the sun itself. And, and what again was that called? The monstrous. The monstrous, right. So into this monstrous, <laughs> is, uh, the sun monstrous is placed the, the, uh, the Eucharist and, and portrayed around. And so the sun playing this very... Uh, prominent role in the worship services then and still today. So, in it, so the, the, these abominations, greater, greater abominations, they're worshiping in the temple of God for technically five different things. So they're worshiping this image that provokes the jealousy, they're worshiping these carved images, they're worshiping Tammuz, and they're worshiping the sun with their backs to the temple, but they're also in the temple. And so they're also worshiping the true God, or at least professing to. They're still going through the sacrificial services. They still have the Ark of the Covenant there. They still have the menorah there. They still have the pieces of furniture there. And so they were professing to follow God, and they're following all these other things as well. And that's the greatest abomination, maybe, of it all, is this mixing of it all. And today, you can go to a Chinese buffet restaurant, and you can get... Uh, Chinese lo mein and, 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 and fried rice. And you can also get fried chicken and french fries. I don't know if in China they, they eat a lot of french, uh, I mean, uh, french fries and, and fried chicken. But uh, I don't know, do french fries come from France? Is that a French thing? Or is that just name just throwing like French bread or something? Uh, but whatever the case, it's not a Chinese food, right? And, and uh, in that picture, uh, cheese, macaroni cheese balls. I don't know if in China they eat. Uh, I know when I went to Chinatown, uh, I don't remember any of the restaurants serving cheese balls there, cheese, macaroni and cheese and, and fried chicken and, and uh, french fries. Uh, you could have put a pizza on there as well, right? In the same line, the same buffet, you can get pizza and all kinds of things. It's no longer Chinese food. And that's fine, you know, if that's how you like to eat and fill your plate and mix it all together. Uh, you know, a little Italian, a little French, a little American, really all American, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and some kind of chinese -y type of stuff, and mix it all together, you know, that's, that, that's fine. And that's where we get things like where you can get a fried chicken taco. <laughs> I don't know if the Mexicans had fried chicken tacos there, or, or a taco pizza, 
I don't know if that's how they serve it in, in, in Italy, um, or a, a chiza, something like that, a chiza, right? Chiziza, whatever that thing is. Right, so you can have these mixtures of all things together, and again, if, if your stomach can handle that and you like that, and you know, so okay, so culture, diversity, that's all fine to mix some things together, maybe in the food aspects. But there are some things you definitely don't want to mix, even if they're good things, right? Like bleach and ammonia, right? Those are both good products. They both serve a purpose for certain different things. But you never want to put them together, right? Oh, this is good and this is good. It'll be really good, right? <laughs> we'll clean that toilet drain, right? And you'll be, have to leave the house for... And so you, there's some things you don't want to mix, even if they are good things in and of themselves. And we have that going on today. We've had it going on for a while, but the internet has just propagated that even more so. When you can go to YouTube University and, and, and googly gook and uh, you know, look at this and look at that and read that and watch this and get all this kind of stuff from all these different areas and just blend it all together and throw it all together in your mind and think that you know something or think that you learned something when in reality they are conflicting ideas and not in harmony with one another and produces chaos in our spiritual theological brain. And so we think just because we can watch a few videos that we're now experts on it. And that might be good enough to learn how to change the tire on your car or something. But when we're mixing the theology around, like mixing sometimes bleach and ammonia, People are doing that left and right. In some ways, similar to what was done in the temple. Five different things of worship and claiming to worship the same God. It can be very spiritually dangerous. To understand the Bible, we have to understand it systematically and understand the whole thing in harmony together. And everything has to come together. Today they have a term for this called postmodernism, where People will take lots of different conflicting ideas and put them together in their brain and have no problem with it. Kind of like uh, in Fiddler on the Roof when uh, Tevi is talking to a bunch of men out in the, out in the um, city square and, and one guy says something and he says to him, you know you're right. And someone else says something that's totally the opposite of what that other man said. And Tevi turns to him and says, you're right. And a third person speaks up and says, you said that he is right, and you said that he is right. Well, they, they can't both be right. And Tevye responded, you also are right. <laughs> but that's what we have today. It's all these ideas just coming in from all these different areas and all these different directions without realizing that they're really all different in a sense. They don't all come together as clogs in a wheel and, and, and work in harmony together when we try and put them together. So we have all these pieces of a puzzle. Like you had 10 puzzles at one time in your house and they all fell off the shelf and you mix them all together and now you get all these different puzzle pieces. Maybe not all of them from all of them, but you got a bunch of them. Doesn't matter, this box had 100, this box had 100, I'll just take 100 off the ground, throw that, 100 off the ground, throw that in this box, 100 off the ground, throw it in that box. And you're not going to be able to make a, a, 
a picture of that. They're not going to come together. But we think we're okay because we've got 100 pieces in our box. And so we think, oh, well, that's okay. I've got it all here now. But when we try and piece them all together, they need to match. The whole Bible matches. And so every aspect of our theological mind needs to match together in harmony. Tammuz and the worship of God and, and, and the idol images that provoke the jealousy and the carved images and the worship of the sun don't all come together in harmony together. And so yeah, there's a lot of nice people out there like bleach and ammonia and they're all maybe good and saved and you know, it's not for me or us to judge or condemn. It doesn't mean we can just take that everyone and maybe they may have some good things. But it doesn't mean we can just mix it all together and think it's all going to be okay. So let's continue with Ezekiel chapter 9 now. Put a mark on the forehead of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done. Do not slay anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Now, last week we covered the sighing and crying aspect, right? Place the mark on the forehead of those who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done. And so we talked about, because in order to receive the mark of God, we need to be those that sigh and cry. So that came first, because uh, we're not sighing and crying. God's not going to place his mark upon us. And so we studied what it meant to sigh and cry. And again, that, is on, that sermon is also on shalomadventure.com, and we can see it there. So in sighing and crying, then those who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done in the land, God places his mark. And then he says, do not slay anyone on whom is that mark, and begin at the sanctuary. A lot of people are familiar with the term, the mark of the beast. That doesn't mean they understand what it is, but they're familiar with it, and there's a lot of different theories on that as well. But unless we understand it in light of the mark of God, which a lot of people are not familiar with that phrase at all or that concept at all, but unless we understand the first, well, unless we're first sighing and crying properly, not grumbling and complaining, not criticizing and judging, not backbiting and negativity, but sighing and crying, for the abominations that are done in the land, then we won't be able to receive the mark of God. And if we don't understand the mark of God, if we don't sigh and cry, and we don't understand the mark of God, then we're not going to understand the mark of the beast. We need to first understand the lamb before we can understand the beast. And we need to understand the lamb's mark, God's mark, before we even understand the beast's mark. And unless we understand the lamb's mark, the God's mark, in relation to Ezekiel chapter 8, 9, and 10 in harmony together, we're not going to get the right picture on it. We're not going to, and the rest of the scriptures that talk about it, and that's what we're going to be looking at today, the scriptures regarding this mark of God. We looked a little bit in context already, chapter 8, and last week we showed a little bit of chapter 10. So now a little bit more on this mark of God. From Psalm 119, Verse 136, rivers of water run down from my eyes. So he's sighing and crying. That's a lot of crying. Rivers of water flowing out of my eyes because men don't keep your law. So he's sighing and crying 
because of God being hurt because men are not keeping God's law. And so part of this aspect of the seal of God has to do with God's law. The abominations, those that sigh and cry over the abominations that are done in the land, the abominations are the not keeping God's law. We're going to see that play out more with a lot of different scriptures. Now, I mentioned that mark of God. Now, in the Bible, we're going to see the word seal, mark, sign, all used interchangeably. And we use them interchangeably today as well. All right, so like the seal of, of Florida, right? The great seal of the state of Florida has on it, in God we trust. And then we have a, a road marker and road signs, right? And they're all identifications. That's the purpose of it. Right, so the seal of Florida identifies this as the state of Florida. It's the symbol of the state of Florida. And so if uh, something has that mark on it or that seal on it, then you know this is property of the state of Florida. Or, or if it's on a car, it's a government uh, official car. Uh, the governor will have a, a stamp, a seal, that'll have the seal of the state of Florida. And it'll have his name, Governor Rick Scott. And, uh, and so that's a seal, it's an identification. And the same with the road marker, it identifies what's there, it identifies what it's wanting you to know about and what you want you to see and what is taking place there or has taken place there. And the same with the road sign. It identifies the city, the exit that you're coming up on, the name of the road, it's giving us identifications. And the same with the mark of God as well as the mark of the beast. It identifies who we are or whose we are. It identifies it that way. So these terms are interchangeable, and we're going to see that. All right, so we've already seen the, the mark of God. Revelation 7, verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, when it said, Seal or mark Put my mark upon the people. Where did it say to put the mark? On the forehead. And when it's talking about the seal in Revelation, where is it telling them to put the seal? On the forehead. So we see a parallel there. And it said, don't do what to those who have the mark of God? Do not kill them. Do not slay them. And here it's saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God. So again, we see a direct parallel there. Right? Three different things, a matching write-up. So just the difference is the word and the mark the words mark and seal, but they mean the same thing. So the mark of God, the seal of God, we have that, and we will not be able to be harmed spiritually by the devil. We'll have the seal of God. We'll be sealed with the seal of God. And it takes place in our foreheads. We'll talk a little bit about that in some more text. Verse Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right, The Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The via hafta. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. What do we call the area, the frontlet between our eyes? What's that called? Your forehead, right. So again, so he's talking about the same thing. All right, so take these words which I command you today, and there should be a sign. So we saw a mark, sign, seal, all together, all interchangeably, uh, being placed upon the forehead. So these words which I command you today 
What were the words that God commanded that very day? This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Ten Commandments. Chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5 is the Ten Commandments. The list of the Ten Commandments there, Deuteronomy chapter 5, as well as in Exodus 20, but in Deuteronomy, it's in chapter 5. And so in chapter 6, he says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, and write these laws, these ten words that I gave you today, write them on your heart. How does he mean actually physically get off, you know, someone to give you open heart surgery and, and, and write in there, you know, and get a tattoo on your heart? Are you talking about place it inside the heart, right? Love the law, right? And with your hands, put it upon your hands. Doesn't mean, a, again, a stamp on the hand or a box on our arm, but whatever your hand findeth to do, do with all your might, right? So it's talking about doing with our hands, we're acting, we're living it out. And place it upon the mind, it's again not an outward thing on the, but it's in the mind, just as it's in the heart, it's in the mind, right? So God puts his, his words, his laws into our mind, which means choosing it. Because that's what we do with the frontal part of our mind. You didn't say the back part, but the frontal part, frontal lobe, that's where we make our decisions, where we make our choices. That's why if we drink alcohol or any other type of drug, it affects first the frontal lobe. And it then lowers our ability to make right choices. That's why people do very stupid things when they're drugged or, or, uh, or drunk. Things that they would not have done otherwise because their decision-making process, right? So he says, put my laws, choose my laws, choose to obey them, but that's not enough. We need to love them as well. Now that's not something we can do in our own power. We can choose them in our own power, but we cannot love them in our own power. That's a miracle that God has to do in us. And so we can pray, we can choose to pray, and choose to say, God, take out my hard heart, take out my carnal heart, and give me your heart, give me a love for your things, give me a love for your law, give me a love for you, give me a love for your people, give me a love for the lost. And then God comes in and he puts his love in us. And then he thus writes his laws in our hearts and places them into us. So we confess our carnal nature. It's taken away. It's placed in Yeshua. And he dies for it. And he kills it and blots it away. And then he fills us with his Holy Spirit, writing his laws on our heart. And then if it, we've chosen it and God places his heart in us and we love it, then what will naturally come out of our hands and our feet and our actions? The doing of it, right, the actions of it. And so place them on these three areas. That's the seal of God, the sign of God, the mark of God. So we've seen it already right in the middle of the Bible in Ezekiel and in Psalms. We've seen it at the end in Revelation. We've seen it in the beginning in Torah, in, in Deuteronomy, and in the book of Hebrews. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So there again, in the heart and in the mind, God writing his laws. So Deuteronomy was these words that I give you this day. Here it's saying laws. In the Psalms it was uh, laws. Uh, in Ezekiel it was the, the mark of God. Put that upon us. So to put the laws again in our minds and in our our hearts. And that's what God does. I, God saying, I will put my laws in their mind and their heart. So it's a miracle that God does. 
that he changes our minds that are carnal and in opposition to him and in resistance to him and actually enmity against him. And he changes us to where we desire him, where we choose him, where we love him, and we love to follow him. And that should just make sense, right? That the, the, heart, the laws would go together with, with identifying us as God's people. The harmony of that together, right? We were able to work at the job because we get to wear the uniform or whatever, or get the check at the end of the week, or, or you know, somehow identify as part of that corporation or that company or something, because we do what they tell us to do. Right? We obey their rules or their laws or their policies. And right? if we don't, they say you don't have to be identified with us anymore. <laughs> you can go find someone else to be identified with. And so just following the basic tenets of whatever company, that just makes sense, right? And so it's identified, it's God's identification of whose we are, whom we belong to. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. So the book of Isaiah. So a lot of different Bible books talking about this seal, this mark of God. And especially in correlation to the law of God. And that it's placed upon us and placed upon our foreheads, placed upon our hearts, lived out in our lives. The law of God. Testifying that we are God's children that we are his, that he is ours. Now, as we've looked at this, we've looked at the law in general, bind up the law, we saw it in Deuteronomy, specifically referring, so the law could refer to the whole Bible. Right? There are laws all throughout the Bible. And God commands us to follow them. I was on the plane this week, and I, I met some, sat down right between uh, two people, and and got into a real interesting conversation. And, and the one person, I forget how we got onto that, but he, he said, uh, you know, he just kind of picks and chooses what, what he follows in the Bible because, you know, just what, whatever makes sense for today. And I said, well, God's laws don't always make sense for us today, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't follow them. And he said, well, can you give me an example? And I said, well, like when God told Moses to go down a certain path as he led us out of Egypt, it didn't make sense the direction we went. It took us to the, a dead end. It took us to, to the, the Red Sea with walled in on either side and the Egyptians chasing us. But Moses didn't say, well, this route doesn't make sense. I'm going to go this way. God had a plan, and sometimes we don't see the plan till later on. And sometimes we don't see the reason till heaven. But God does know what he's doing. And it's for us to trust and us to walk in his ways and God sometimes shows us the reasons. Sometimes they make sense. But we do know that God is good. And he won't ask us to do anything that's not in our own best interest. He loves us. And he, everything he does and gives to us to do and, and blessings, both promises and, and, and laws and statutes, is for our benefit and the benefit of humanity and because he loves us. Not just an arbitrary thing. Now, so we looked at, so the laws could represent all aspects of the Bible, because the whole Bible is filled with laws. There's also the 
narrower version of the Torah, the Torah referring to the laws, the 613 laws in there. We saw in Deuteronomy, it was referring, well, the Ten Commandments, the laws I gave this day, just quoted just the chapter just before, a few verses before. But we're going to see now God's going to narrow down even closer which of these laws in particular will stand out as the seal of God, as the mark of God, as the sign of God. All of them do apply. But the Bible picks out one in particular, even more so than the rest. However, moreover, I gave, also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me, them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So in the book of Ezekiel, we've come kind of round circle already, or again, Ezekiel 9, back to lots of different Bible verses, Revelation, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Psalms, Hebrews. And now back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. My Sabbaths are a sign between us and God that he is the Lord that sanctifies us. The word sanctify means set apart. That he sets us apart, that he sets us apart for holy use, that he sets us apart as his own. The sanctification process is God's transforming part of our lives. And so the Sabbath, in particular, according to the scriptures, is one way that he shows that he has transformed our lives. Because it's more than just belief. It's more than just marking it in the forehead. It's in the heart and it's in the actions as well. Right? We can say, well, we believe. You know, We can say, I, I believe in the laws of Florida. I believe in Governor Scott. I believe in our government system. I believe in, in the driver's manual. We can take that test and get 100% on it. But then we go speeding down the road, 50 miles over the speed limit, for the 10th time, and the police officer pulls us over, we can say, but I love my state. I voted for our governor. I read that book 10 times. I took that class 10 times already. I paid my registration and all the penalties. And I really believe it. I got 100% every time. I fully believe it. Is that going to be enough to keep us from getting a ticket? No. Having our driver's license taken away? No. So why should we think it should be any different with God? We wouldn't expect that from a boss or if we we're in a uh, ownership of a company, if we wouldn't expect the same of our employees. If we were a landlord and we had tenants and we expected them to follow the basic rules that we gave out, you know, whether pay on this time and, you know, don't sublease it or whatever other things are in the contract. We expect their testimony, their belief, their signature to match up with their action, or their action to match up with their signature. Same with the driver's license, same with the job. Well, same with God. Why should God be any different? Why should God just take us and saying, well, I believe. I voted, I prayed, I went down the altar. But then our lives not follow that. Right? So the sanctifying, it proves that it sanctifies when we are following his laws. Doesn't that just make sense? 
So we have the justifying part and we have the sanctifying part. The justifying part is what God has done in our behalf without us, without our permission, for us, before we were ever born. The Messiah dying for us, before we were ever born, technically as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, he did that without us, without us knowing, without our permission. He forgave our sins, he took the penalty, and it's offered to everyone freely. More than offered, it's given, been paid for already. It's a done deal. We receive the benefit of it by accepting it and believing it. So that's justification, something that he did without us before we were born. The sanctification process is what God does in us and through us, with us, and with our permission. And that's the transforming, the life-living aspects of walking with God. That's the combination that works together. The faith in what God has done and the faith in what God is doing in the transformational process. And so the Sabbath is one of the ways that show us that we have been sanctified. This is a lot of laws that in the Bible and the Ten Commandments that, you know, make sense. I mean, thou shalt not murder. I mean, a lot of countries that have that. Thou shalt not steal. I mean, even communist countries and atheistic countries and, and all kinds of countries have those laws. But there's certain laws that demonstrate that we are following God, that God is living in us, that he's changed us, that they lived out in our lives. Really only a few that I can think of. The Sabbath being one of them. Doesn't make sense. How I'll be able to have as much money by working six days as I will if I work seven days. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense why this day is more special than other days of the week. But it's what God set apart. And it shows that we believe him and we live it out. A couple other things. What we do with the finances God placed in our hands is a visible demonstration of that we have chosen him and that he's living in us. And what we put into our bodies, what we eat and, and don't eat and drink and don't drink. Demonstration of that we're following, we're walking in his ways. Most other things are doctrinal and in the mind. But those things in particular lived out. Demonstrate that we've been sanctified. Demonstrate that God is changing us. That he's changed our hearts. That he's given us new desires. He's taken out the desire for the other things. He's taken out the lack of faith. He's taken out the that I have to do it, that I will do it, that I will overcome. Right? Because we can do the outward things to a certain extent in our own strength, but that won't put the seal in our foreheads. It has to be in the foreheads, in the heart, and on the hand. Not just done outwardly. When we're doing it outwardly, it'll be drudgery. It'll be works. It'll be burdensome. The Bible says his laws are not burdensome. And so we're loving his laws. We're loving his ways. As the psalmist wrote, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. Carnally, we hate it. Carnally, we resist it. But when we're transformed by God, surrendered, carnal nature buried in the Messiah, filled with his spirit, he then lives it out through us. And it was the Holy Spirit lived out in Yeshua. I gave him the power to walk in all of God's ways. 
And that same spirit will live in us and be walked out in our lives today as well. Ezekiel 2020. So if you want 2020 vision, understand God's word, this is the text. 2020. Ezekiel 2020. Keep holy my Sabbath, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So again, it's God's sign, God's seal that he places upon us, that he sets us apart as his own. So the whole law in general, but this one in particular becomes the testing one that demonstrates that we believe and live it out by his grace, by his power, in us and through us. So why the Sabbath over all the other ten? Well, as we look at the ten, you know, not murder, not commit adultery, all these things, but why? And who says so? A lot of countries will have some of those things, or at least two of those things, not murder, not steal. But who says I can't lie? Who says I can't covet? Sabbath commandment has the same type of seal as ancient seals, as modern seals. Like I gave the illustration of the seal of Florida. The seal of the state of Florida, Governor Rick Scott. On his seal, that's what it'll say. The seal of the United States, the president's seal will say, Seal of the United, the United States of America, President Donald Trump, and it'll be on his seals. And the same on ancient seals that they've found. It'll have the, the person's title, um, Cyrus, King of Persia. So three things, the person's name, their title, and their territory. Well, of all of God's laws, the Sabbath has all of those three things. His name, his territory, and his title. The Lord, the creator of the heavens and earth. His name, the Lord, his title, creator, and his territory, the heavens and the earth. So just like all the other seals, the Sabbath has God's seal upon it. And so when we allow that seal to be placed upon us, when we follow God's Sabbath, it's demonstrating that we are his that he is ours, that he has put a sign on us. These are my children. They walk in my ways. They have faith in Yeshua the Messiah and keep the laws of God. A combination that's very unique. Shouldn't be that hard, but that's unique. To have that combination. That's a summary of the seal of God, the mark of God, the sign of God that he places upon us. And the mark of the beast is just the opposite, the, the uh, counterfeit of it, because Satan counterfeits everything that God does. And interestingly enough, is has been done since the beginning of time, as we've already seen. Nothing new under the sun. Put a mark on the forehead of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done. We want to receive God's mark. First, we need to be those that sigh and cry, that our heart breaks 
and we're willing to trade places for the lost so that they can be in heaven. Love with that kind of love, which again is not natural. It's miraculous. It's something that God has to do in us. When we love God so much that we don't want to hurt him, when we hurt him by crucifying him afresh, in disobedience and breaking his laws, causing him pain, because he paid the price for our sins, and our sins are breaking of his laws. And so when we surrender all to him, it'll hurt us that other people, that when we hurt him, and it'll hurt us when we see other people hurting him. And we'll pray and we'll intercede for them with sighing and crying and praying for the lost as a demonstration that we have God's heart. A demonstration that we have God's mind. A demonstration that we have God's hands when we're living out his word. And then he can seal us. He can place his mark upon us. He can put a sign upon us. These are my children. Do not harm them. And he'll be able to see us through to the very end and on into eternity. And if that's your desire tonight, is any sin on your record still, anything that needs to be surrendered, even just one thing, when we pray in a moment, I'll invite you to surrender that to the Lord. God's convicting you in any area. But he can't seal you because there's still some rebellion in your heart. Known, cherished, rebellious resistance to God in his word. In a moment, I'll invite you to surrender to him, accept his forgiveness that he's already paid for, and accept his Holy Spirit to transform you and change you, to give you his faith, to give you his power, to give you his life. There's been some idol in your life, some area in your life, Maybe some mixing of various things together, maybe from the past or other places, and you're mixing it together. You're seeing a conflict with the whole Word of God. You want to surrender that. Follow Him and Him alone. There'll be no other God before you and Him. In a moment when we pray, you can surrender that to Him. If we're not at the point yet of praying for others, the lost, especially our enemies, praying in such a way that we love them so much that we'd be willing to give up heaven for them. If we're not at that point yet, in a moment when we pray, we can ask God to place that in us. God did it in Moses. God did it in Paul. God can do it in us as well. He did it in Yeshua. He can give us that kind of love, that kind of sighing and crying. If all our prayers have just been selfish about ourselves, let us surrender it. And ask God to give us his heart, his love. And if we haven't been keeping the Sabbath and you want to start keeping God's Sabbath, the moment when we pray covenant with God, surrender that to God, let God give you power to take a stand, to choose with our foreheads, our minds. God give us a love for him above all other things. And then the power to walk in that way. And for him to open up the doors for us. So that applies to you. When we pray, you can ask God to do that in your life as well. Or any other area that God's been speaking to your heart and mind.
Give us the power to stand for him, to be his children, to be identified as his. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called sons and daughters of God. What a high privilege. He wants to place his name upon us. His sign, his mark, his identification. These are my children. And he wants to hold us up before the whole entire universe and before the whole entire world and all the created beings and say, this is what it looks like, what I can do in the heart of a person. I can take someone who is totally rebellious, born totally rebellious against me, and I can transform them like a Job to walk in my way. Let us take God at his word and walk by grace, his grace, in his ways as his children and not take his name in vain and walk all over it, professing to be his and not following him. Again, it's his spirit that puts it into us. It's his power that does it. Not yourselves, not myself. That's legalism, that's works. But letting God sanctify us, letting God do it in us and through us. There was a young man, he was an orphan, not an orphan, he was uh, born, his father left, the parents weren't married, illegitimate child as it be called, back, back in the days, back when uh, that certainly was very rare and unheard of and frowned upon. And uh, he was shamed everywhere he went. And go to the store with his mother, he'd hear people whispering in another aisle, have you figured out whose son he really is? One day a new minister came in to the congregation And the boy was there in services that day. And at the end of the services, the minister was going and shaking hands, and he shook the young boy's hand. And he said with a loud voice, Hello there, young man. Whose son are you? And the congregation all got quiet because everybody was wanting to know the answer to that question for so long. And now the boy is going to tell us all. And before the boy could even say anything or run, the minister said, I know whose boy you are. I can tell by the resemblance. You are a son of God. That's a high calling. Live up to it. And that boy never forgot that. And he eventually became a governor. True story. Of one of the states, I forget which state in our union it is. And the same upon us. God has called us his sons, his daughters. And by his grace, we can live up to that call. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we praise your holy name and we thank you for your word and for your power. 
and your grace. We thank you for your great love for us and we thank you, Lord, for your power to transform us and change us and to make us into your image once again. We confess we've fallen far short. We accept the sacrifice of the Messiah to wash us clean of all the past. Because you've been resurrected and live, we accept the power of your Holy Spirit to come into us and live in us and through us and seal us with your righteousness, with your Holy, by your Holy Spirit, by your power, to live out your word in the earth so that people can truly see what you are like. Give us love for one another, a love for you, a love for the lost. And we sigh and we cry, we pray, we intercede for all the abominations done in the land. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.